So let's turn our attention to this now. Human Rights Watch has revealed that some governments around the world are using the COVID-19 pandemic to suppress freedom of speech, speech rather, and political activity. The organization says it's identified more than 80 countries, which it says are guilty of this practice. Some of the countries include China, Egypt and Russia. Jerry Simpson is the Associate Director at Human Rights Watch's Con- Crisis and Conflict division in Geneva. Uh, Jerry, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for coming on to the show today. I'm curious to know what sparked um, this research? Why did you decide to look into this issue? It's a very good question. We looked around the world um, starting early last year and found very quickly that governments took very swift measures in response to criticism about their responses to the pandemic. Mm. So they not only censored uh, media outlets, took down blog posts, intimidated medics and threatened medics' relatives, but they also very swiftly passed laws and other regulations outlawing what they say is dangerous speech that threatens public health. So what they really mean is they outlawed any speech that contradicted the authorities' line on what COVID was and how best to respond to it. And so as we saw this very swift response, it reminded us actually of what happened after 9-11 and the attacks on the Twin Towers Mm. in in New York, when countries all over the world very quickly introduced counter-terror legislation that ripped up due process rights and, as we know, led to widespread abuses all around the world. So we were worried when we saw that. And as our research has shown, we've had good reason to be worried. Jerry, has it been strange that that became the automatic response of government? So one just has to look at China, which you've also been looking into, where we've been told about, you know, different bloggers, as you've mentioned, different whistleblowers who were trying to raise awareness around COVID-19, the situation that is on the ground in Wuhan. And people were met with responses from the local local authorities, police authorities, and, and literally silenced. And yet, we needed more information about what was unfolding. We didn't need, need silence. Well, the, the right to free speech, actually, interestingly enough, includes the right to receive information. And in particular, when that information relates to very important social issues such as public health, mm. the right to free speech includes the right to receive objective information so that people can take their own decisions on whether their governments are doing a good job at protecting them. And so it was extremely striking, as you say, that instead of recognizing <clears throat> this basic fact of how to protect people's rights to protect themselves, governments decided to take the big brother approach. And it wasn't just China, although China was one of the worst offenders. Mm to take that big brother approach and shut down critical thinking and critical speech in the name of protecting government's reputations. Let's talk about what the patterns that you saw in other countries, because yes. China was the first to implement this, this lockdown effectively as, as um, the, the virus was beginning to really entrench itself in the city of Wuhan. Other governments would then follow in, this, in, in, this, in these footsteps. So how much of, the, how much of that became a precedent then? Um, I think uh, whether or not governments were looking to the Chinese behavior to justify their own uh, is unclear to us. But what was clear is that very soon after, 
So in February and March last year, and it's continued since then, governments swiftly moved to crack down. And they've done so in, in five ways, five ways we found. Mm. Uh, firstly, um, military and police forces have physically assaulted journalists, bloggers and protesters. Um, they, the abuses have included firing live ammunition at protesters and beating them at checkpoints and assaulting them in detention. So, for example, in Uganda mm. last year, the security forces used tear gas and bullets against supporters of one of the presidential candidates who had been detained for allegedly breaching COVID-19 regulations by mobilizing large crowds for his campaign rallies. And they killed 54 people and injured at least 45 others. And, and the government, and it's interesting because the government said these crowds cannot be allowed to gather because they are a threat to public health. So mm. we have to ban these rallies. Yet at the same time, the government let large pro-government rallies go ahead. And this is a pattern we've seen throughout the world. Governments using COVID as an excuse to crack down on political speech generally, not just about COVID, but mm. any political speech, mm. Mm. Uh, and at the same time allowing those kinds of rallies to go ahead if they flatter the government. Mm. So clear, arbitrary use of COVID for political purposes. Let's talk about the shutting down the of, 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 of the infrastructure before you get to the to the second point, because you've mentioned the protest, but we've seen it accompanied by the shutting down of telecommunications, the Internet as, as, a, as a response also. Exactly. So in, in many countries, governments have looked very closely at who is posting what. So, for example, in China, the authorities last year investigated over 17,000 people for what they call fabricating and spreading um, false news. Mm. And in other countries, outlets have, uh, the governments have completely shut down media outlets that they just don't like. And they have used COVID as an excuse to do so when those, uh, because those outlets have crit- historically been critical of the authorities. Mm. So very interesting when you look at some of these cases, it turns out actually that many of the places that were shut down have said very little about COVID. But they were chosen because they were just critical of the government generally, while other outlets that were more pro-government were allowed much more leeway in mentioning COVID criticism uh, and, and, and making other comments about the public health response. So again, very politicized use of these laws. Mm. And, and that was one of the areas we found. Governments have imposed a huge range of laws um, banning false <coughs> information, fake news and other information governments deem to be of concern. And one of our main concerns is that we have seen after 9-11 that many of these laws remain on the books long after the threat has subsided. So we will be watching very closely as the pandemic hopefully winds Mm. down in 2021, we certainly hope so, to see whether governments maintain these repressive laws introduced in the name of COVID, or whether, as they are required to under international human rights law, they take them off the books and go back to the pre-COVID legal situation. Jerry, I'm going the to give human you... Rights Council, so, so, sorry to interject there, Jerry. I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to continue with, with the, re- the rest of your list in a moment. We just need to take a quick break. I'm in conversation with Jerry Simpson. He's the Associate Director at Human Rights Watches, Human Rights Watches' Crisis and Conflict Division in Geneva. The Talking Point with Kathy Moslasana, weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday.
You're live on The Talking Point. We continue taking a look then at the latest reports from Human Rights Watch, looking into how governments have been seeking to silence freedom of speech and political activity using COVID-19 as an excuse and as a reason to do that. Uh, Jerry Simpson is with the organization. He joins us now uh, from Geneva. Jerry, you are going through the list and telling us about some of the other means and ways in which governments were stifling um, the movement and the freedom of speech of people. One of the um, main concerns we've seen is so widespread arbitrary arrest, detention and prosecution of critics of the government responses. So this isn't just journalists and bloggers and other critical thinkers, but it's also healthcare staff Mm -hmm. who are on the front line in the fight against this disease, risking their life day in, day out. And so just to give you an example, in Egypt, for example, the authorities last year at one point in Cairo, detained at least nine medical staff for speaking publicly about the lack of personal protective equipment, so masks and gloves and gowns that they needed to protect themselves Mm -hmm. against the the, the virus in hospitals. And they charged them with spreading fake news, misusing social media, and even under terrorism laws, joining an unlawful organization, which referred to being part of a medical syndicate that spoke out in favor of protecting doctors against the virus in hospitals. And you can imagine that when Egypt and other authoritarian regimes impose these kinds of responses, it has a massive chilling effect, Mm -hmm. dissuading not only every other medic in the country from speaking out about what they're seeing and the failures that governments have unfortunately um, uh, proceeded with in responding to this uh, pandemic, But it also creates a chilling uh, effect for everyone else. So if bloggers, journalists, citizen journalists and others see medics being arrested, they know that they're not safe either. So when we document these individual cases, you have to bear in mind that it has a widespread knock-on effect for the rest of society and the right to free speech. How do you know, agencies within countries begin to change the state of affairs? Because... On the one hand, people sit and they look at the impact that the lockdown regulations have had when it comes to, uh, you know, slowing down the spread of COVID-19 and they see the impact. And yet at the same time, there are ongoing protests in different countries about people not being able to access some of the things that they would generally enjoy as a result of these restrictions that have been put in place. So effectively, I guess what I'm asking is when do people know when the line is being crossed? Uh, That's a very good question. So to put it in concrete terms relating to gatherings, for example, if a government says the public health data shows that we should not be gathering in restaurants or bars or nightclubs, and there is a public debate about that data, and it's established to be factual and objective, the government has every right to prevent people from gathering in those ways. But the actions have to be based on objective facts and science that is openly discussed. Mm-hmm. And the problem arises when governments just start banning political rallies, banning gatherings, based not on data, but on political reasons. So, for example, you can have public protests, but you can impose limits on how many people can protest in one area, mm-hmm. how close they're allowed to be to each other, whether they should be wearing masks. There are measures that can be taken, but these outright bans are, as described under international law, not necessary and disproportionate in order to protect public health. 
So the requirement is very clear. Governments can take measures, but they have to be necessary and proportionate to the aim of protecting public health. Two of our key recommendations in the report are geared to two very important international organizations. In answer to your other question, how do we change government's behavior? Mm -hmm. They are the UN Human Rights Council, which is the main human rights watchdog in Geneva in Switzerland that polices states' compliance with their human rights obligations. And the second organization is the World Health Organization, mm -hmm. which has international health regulations that govern how states respond to public health crises, such as this one. And those regulations include the, the requirement for states to respect human rights when they respond to public health crises. So we're calling on both of those bodies, the Human Rights Council and the World Health Organization, mm. to much more closely monitor state abuses of human rights as they respond to the pandemic, whether it's free speech or other abuses such as violence in detention or arbitrarily violent policing of social gatherings, and that they hold states to account at their meetings in Geneva, publicly shame them for the mm. failures and closely monitor and report in the years to come how states comply with their obligations. Mm. Of course, that in itself always proves to be something that's uh, easier said than done. There, there seems to be a difficulty among states yes. for, for calling each other out on some of these activities. We don't see it yes. in um, you know, some of the continental groups such as the African Union. We don't see it in the regional blocs. You know, it just doesn't happen. That, that is correct. However, at the Human Rights Council in, in Geneva, we have 47 members, and many of those countries are very concerned about these kinds of widespread abuses that take place in these global contexts. Mm. And so we do think there is momentum there for some states to get together and to request, uh, for example, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which is the UN's human rights analyst, basically, to produce much more detailed reports that present in detail which countries are committing abuses in which way. And once that kind of reporting, which is what we've tried to do in our report released yesterday, is on the table at the Human Rights Council and at the World Health Organization, it's very difficult to ignore those reports. And there will always be states willing, and countries and governments willing, to raise these reports and demand action. All right. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, that was Jerry Simpson, Associate Director at Human Rights Watch's Crisis and Conflict Division in Geneva. Let's take a couple of WhatsApp voice notes on this matter. 